Hello, and welcome to Looked Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the official BBC Enterprises 1988 Doctor Who and the Daleks t-shirt featured the giant green Dalek towering over some fleeing citizens. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seems to is actor and comedian Toby Haydoke. Toby, what you up to? Where can we find it? I'm... Well, I started in lockdown. I started a podcast like everybody else, but I couldn't think of what to do apart from it being Doctor Who. So I do three Doctor Who podcasts, all under an umbrella called Toby Haydoke's Time Travels. And one is a deep dive into each episode in chronological order, telling you everything about it. Another one is sort of whimsical essays based on some arcane observation or a nostalgic remembrance. And another one is a positive inclined podcast where I try and watch you know an episode nominated by a friend they choose their favorite things about it and I have to sort of commentate along to the episode and see if I can guess what their favorite thing is which forces me to look upon the positive rather than you know be disdainful as these things often find themselves and when I'm not talking about Doctor Who in too much detail you can occasionally spot me on the streets of Weatherfield giving out parking tickets <laughs> well I'm sure he wouldn't take a very very enlightened view of Coronation Street either but if you're planning to watch Doctor Who in 1987, the protagonist of your first choice might have something to say about that. I was sitting with Matthew, we were watching TV, he said, hey Matthew, what do you see? Do you see the guns? Do you see the bombs? See those people throwing all of those stones? Do you see the cars going up in the flames? See their faces? Do you know their names? Hey Matthew, when you're watching TV, hey, hey Matthew, what do you see? Do you see the tension in a rich man's house? Do you see the cat? Do you see the mouse? Do you see the beauty or the big bad beast? Do you see the famine? Do you see the feast? In this world of villains, do you see the crime? There's a superhero waiting at the edge of time. Hey Matthew, when you're watching TV, said, hey, hey Matthew, what do you see? That was part of the very judgmental Hey Matthew by Carol Fialka, a song that, let's just say, I've got a troubled relationship with. Toby, why have you chosen this? Well, just because it resides in my mind more than... And I I had to try and think outside the box for this podcast because it would be easy for me just to go, that television programme one person remembers because that's kind of how my mind works. So I tried to sort of go out of my comfort zone. You know, music sort of washes over me and I'll listen to whatever's on. I'm certainly not, you know, I have no expertise in music in any way but I just remember this and I think it's a curious old thing and I kind of like it it's got a very simple tune that I seem to recall is sort of synthesised panpipes with then people literally going woo which seems very at odds with the thrust of the piece which is basically a dad lecturing his son about although I did look this up on Wikipedia some years ago and to my surprise it said it's a stepson now there's nothing in the text of Hey Matthew as far as 
I recall. You know, he doesn't go, I'm sorry, Matthew, I'm not your real dad, but watching Auto Man is really, really bad, you know, or something like that. It's basically, it's a song where a dad tells a boy, if you watch all this violence, well, I think, because I think the plot changes halfway through the song, because he sort of lectures a boy about violence. My first thought when I thought about this was, it's that song that's basically a treatise about violence on television. And I always like anything. And, And when I was younger, I was very much drawn, not just to comedy, but to comedy that had a point or that was trying to, you know, improve society. I always liked drama that had a sort of educational bent. I'm very Rethian. So a pop song that's basically a finger wag about violence on television was right up my street. And I seem to recall him being on top of the pops, sitting there, and he was in jeans and a jumper. And I like those days where you could sort of look like somebody's dad in jeans and a jumper and just sitting there doing your... I mean, song is quite a stretch because it's... I mean, it's not really much singing going. I think he was a poet, wasn't he? I recall when they introduced him on Top of the Pops or at some point around that time, you know, the piece of information leaked out that he was a poet. I think he was a kind of creative polymath. He was one of those sort of people that you get on regional TV art shows along with those blokes with Thunderbird 2 on the head being introduced as highlights of the local arts festival. I think music was part of his thing, but yes, I think it was wider, which is why he seems to have had a very patchy recording career. Patchy as in he would do something that got attention and then nothing else for a long time. So I assume he was doing, I don't know, fringe theatre or something in the interim. I get the impression that he probably still, I don't know, I haven't, what I've done with this, because I do a lot of podcasts where I'm sort of wheeled out to give arcane facts about actors and stuff and I think I'm a dispenser of tedious arcana. I've deliberately tried to buy into the fact that these are fractured memories and I'm hoping you will be able to help me. And there's part of me that wants this stuff to live in my past and in this sort of touch of a button age where you can find anything. I quite like the fact that I've not sort of looked some of this stuff up but I get the impression, I'd imagine now he looks almost exactly the same and he rolls (laughs) cigarettes out in a beer garden and tells you conspiracy theories and says with a slightly mid-Atlantic drawl on some vowels that he had a couple of hits once but you know he's a bit too cool to mention it. I don't know why I imagined him being like that. The other thing though is because I recall one of the lyrics is something like will you dum 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 will you something 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 will you be a man and of course now that's very problematic the idea that standing up for what is right is being a man and it just goes to show how easy it is for your crusading liberalism to date because he's using very patriarchal language there but I don't know if that's part of it because I'm sure it starts being about you know do you see the guns do you see the bombs it's all about violence on telly but then I'm sure Matthew gives a list of jobs that he wants to do doesn't he he goes I want to be a fireman and have a big boat and you go well do you want to do those things because of what you're watching on the television and if that's the case is that a bad thing and then I seem to recall right at the end Matthew drops quite a sort of prisoner-esque bomb and goes it's all a game I hope and you go whoa Matthew where the hell has that come from (laughs) because it's 1987 it repeats it goes I hope I hope I hope, oh. I hope, as it fades <laughs> out. Doesn't he give a list of television programmes? And I remember being quite disappointed because they struck me as being either very ITV or very... They weren't the sort of programmes... I'd have loved it if he'd gone, I'm watching Blake Seven and I'm watching The Tripods. But instead <laughs> it was... He definitely does Dallas and Dynasty. But then when he even goes sci-fi, he goes very ITV. I think he mentions Blue Thunder. Yes, I can recall them from memory in order. It's Dallas, Dynasty, Terrorhawks, He-Man, which is called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Of course, Tom and Jerry 
The Dukes of Hazard, Airwolf, Blue Thunder, which really I remember being quite goody goody. Rambo. Now, how was he seeing Rambo on the television in 1987? Yeah. Oh, Roadrunner, Carol. Daffy Duck, and the E Team, the E Team, the E Team. I see the E Team. He quite audibly says E Team, who are presumably some relative of them with, I don't know, B E Baracus or something. Hang on, why? And Daffy Duck, that dispenser of mindless violence. Yeah. That's a quite odd one. And also, I think if you go from Airwolf to Blue Thunder, you're really just, I think you choose one or the other. So why do you have a, I'm interested, I'm intrigued, because for me it was just a, as I say, it was just a memory of one of those things that I don't feel you'd get now, but I'm intrigued as to why you have a troubled relationship with it. Well, I found it very patronising in a very guardianist way, like you say, very finger waggy. I couldn't see what half of these programmes he was picking on had done wrong. And also, <laughs> even that age, I felt it was all over the place. There's this list of programmes, Matthew in the video has got a Spider-Man costume on, there's TVs in the background and the very obvious Max Headroom illusion. The recurring riff in the song, the panpipe thing that you mentioned, is very clearly based on a bit of the theme music in the South Bank show. Now, is that deliberate as well? Is he blaming Melvin Bragg for not pursuing his liberal artistic agenda? It just seemed to me to be condescending and a mess and kind of, in retrospect, handing ammo to the Mary Whitehouse lobby by, you know, kind of saying, well, yes, we, on ironically the right-thinking side, the intelligentsia, we agree with you, there's too much violence and even at that age I kind of thought well yeah but they don't enter into negotiation about it they just take the fact that you've agreed with them and use it it just felt to me I didn't like the woos on it they're very incongruous aren't they now I wonder because of course I've always been very anti Mary Whitehouse and anti the hypocrisy of and we were always allowed my mum was very liberal in the sense that I was allowed to stay up and watch programs I remember one of her work colleagues coming around and being absolutely appalled that I was watching the young ones but we were always allowed to watch anything we were credited with the sort of intelligence of being able to you know be exposed to creative stuff that was a bit beyond our age and that was sort of how we were educated my education's really come through popular culture but i wonder if 1987 is post doctor who's hiatus isn't it and it i is. wonder yeah. i remember the big enemy was the a team because the a team was opposite doctor who and doctor who had been censured by michael grade for being and i quote violent and unimaginative and i was always very angry with the a team because the a team was even though I secretly quite liked it. The A-Team showed violence without consequence because nobody ever died. You know, you'd have the helicopter crash into the side of the cliff and then it would cut back and there'd be two very confused people rubbing their backs and coughing. And I resented that because my friends at school liked the A-Team more than Doctor Who at that point. So I think maybe the fact that it was a treatise against, or this is my reading of it, TV violence without consequence, whereas Doctor Who was very thoughtful and intellectual for a programme about a police box that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Maybe I was, you know, the place that I was in at that time was very much keen on that message because I'm certainly not one for, you know, being what he is, as you say, essentially a middle-aged man berating somebody for watching this modern stuff. <laughs> okay, well, moving on to your next choice now, which is something that Matthew would definitely not have been allowed to watch. And to be honest, even though you're allowed to watch the A-Team, I'm surprised that you were. <laughs>
Okay, a theme tune there that will mean a great deal to anyone who grew up in the, well, it went on for most of the 80s, actually. It will either mean you've been allowed to stay up to watch some outrageous comedy, or you'll be thinking, oh no, not this again. Toby, who dares wins? Dare to tell us about it. Well, I mean, again, I was very lucky. I think what happened was, for a short period of time, I was sent away to boarding school, not because we had any money. The opposite, we didn't have any. I was the youngest kid, and my dad had gone away and, and not come back. And he was a doctor, and so a charity who looked after bereaved doctors' families. Basically helped my mum out by saying, well, look, we'll pay for this kid to go to the local boarding school so you don't have to, you know, pick him up from school because she'd had to go back to work and blah de blah blah So as a telly addict, that was the worst thing for me, because I suddenly was only at home on Saturday night. So I think I watched everything. I was allowed to watch everything that was on on Saturday night, including sort of late night TV satire. We as a family and as a household watched a lot of sort of satirical comedy and, you know, a bit like with Hey Matthew, something that does two things that tries to entertain, but also it's weird as I get older, I sort of think, I think political comedy is harder to do now because it comes with it. There is a certain patronising element to it and a certain earnestness, but at the time, who dares wins and a lot of that comedy felt like it was very very clever people being very smart and having a go at the establishment and this had the added it seemed quite sort of thrusting one because it embraced that post-pub idea because I recall very strongly that the opening title sequence was from sort of the point of view of somebody's feet carrying home a Chinese takeaway that just as they get home and I rue it every time I remember it the Chinese takeaway because in those days it came in paper bags which would get wet with the grease spills open and all the noodles (laughs) and everything falls out so the Chinese takeaway is never eaten so it's that sort of somebody's drunk walking back from the pub buys a Chinese takeaway that actually spills out onto the paper before they even start and then they go in don't they and they put the telly on and who dares wins is on and I mainly remember that it was my first encounter with a lot of people who were become very important comedically in different forms because the lineup was Tony Robinson now Sir Tony Robinson Phil Pope who now mostly is known for music but is an excellent comedy performer as well I love his turn in Only Fools and Horses and as Leonardo Acropolis in Blackadder I am a Janie House and Rory McGrath Jimmy Mulville who went on to produce loads of stuff but did have a decent sort of acting career in the 80s and Julia Hills who went on to be in 2.4 Children. It was one of the first big Channel 4 shows and Channel 4 first launched it was between 1983 and 1988 and I've noticed an interesting thing with it which is that if you were that age at that time and there's something you know you maybe occasionally got to see you've got much fonder memories of everyone just that bit younger than me I've noticed that seen it since that you know didn't get to see it the first time round kind of is not just what was all the fuss about but I really dislike this. It's unpleasant. It's offensive. It's crude. Oh, really? It's you not see... really what I expected from alternative comedy. And yet, you know, for example, Meryl O'Rourke has been on here before. Was such a fan of the show, she used to wait for them outside the recordings. Oh, really? Oh, I know Meryl. Now that's interesting because so you say, hang on, it's eighty-three to eighty-eight, and I remember the first episode. I remember it starting, and I was born in nineteen seventy-four. So my mum was letting me stay up, watch Channel Four at what half past ten when I was nine. <laughs> and I look back at that now and sort of think, you know, we're not hippies or anything. We're not people that you would have sort of seen as being a bit 
off grid or odd. But my mum was quite happy for us to stay up and watch this stuff. And I remember it being, I think I learned a lot about politics. You know, we had political shows on, Question Time was always on and all that sort of thing. A lot of stuff I didn't necessarily get, but it slipped in by osmosis. I've not watched any of it since. So again, I think sometimes, well, one, I don't like this thing that we do these days, which is look at the past and patronise it because we've since invented things they didn't know how to use or our social mores are different. You know, I think that way madness lies. And also because it's nice to have a happy memory not be sullied by the crushing reality of it. I only remember one sketch in detail. I remember Jimmy Mulville, I think, had a regular slot where he'd do a sort of dictionary definition. And I remember him doing a Tom King. Now, Tom King was either Secretary of State for Defence or something, but the wheeze of that whole gag was to give, obviously, a comical dictionary definition of it's not actually a word, it's a name, you know. And I just remember him doing a Tom King is a whatever, but I don't remember what the joke was. But I seem to recall that was a regular thing. He'd do that every week. But I remember one standalone sketch that I remember to this day that I actually think is very funny and it's not political at all and it's actually quite childish. It also ties in with something that used to be some sort of urban myth that was in the school playground. It was an assumed thing or it was an accepted truth that Eskimos kissed with their noses. Now, I don't know if that's been proved by anthropologists over the years or it's just some terrible racist assumption. But there was a sketch where they have two Eskimos, Julia Hills and one of the blokes, maybe it was Phil Pope, kissing by obviously rubbing their noses together because that's how Eskimos kiss. So they're kissing away, rubbing their noses. You know, that's the image that based on a, you know, supposition we all have. And then the man gets out a Vicks nasal inhaler and shoves it up her nose. And she feels all sexy because of that, which obviously is a logical extension of the idea that, well, if you kiss with your nose, obviously inserting something up your nose is equally sexy. And I've remembered that sketch ever since. Well, that also, if I remember rightly, that had a red triangle in the corner because that was when Channel 4 were trying oh. to get away with showing sort of contentious, provocative material. The idea that's come around yes. is it was just smut, but there's lots of like political stuff as well. There was that Dennis Hopper film out of the blue about drug addiction. They would get away with showing these things they couldn't normally show by putting a red triangle in the corner. I almost suggested that to you in part of our prep for this. I remember sitting through a whole Australian film called The Clinic. The Clinic with Joe Mangle from Neighbours in it. Yes. Oh, was he? All I remember about it is because one of the reasons I stayed up to watch that is to hopefully get, you know, a look at a, a lady. You know what I mean? Actually, the only thing that really gave it its red triangle was there was a shot of a bloke's tackle at one point with a plaster over the end of his John Thomas. And I remember going, so I've sat through this whole film for that. You know, that was when you had to stay up late if you wanted to, you know, get some sort of education. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think you mentioned context in terms of looking at something like Who Dares Wins. And I do think, you know, knowing quite a bit about the evolution of comedy, particularly around that time. And this is borne out by the fact they had all come from a Radio 4 sketch show called Injury Time, which ran for a couple of seasons. And they were also involved with a stage review that I think Douglas Adams co-wrote called An Evening Without. But throughout all of that, as far as I can tell, in my opinion, you know, the very early alternative comedians were very, very right on. It was all about doing benefits. Some of them, it was more basically more socialist worker propaganda than jokes and so on and then you get this wave of alternatives coming in who kind of reject that you know they're still left-leaning they still do topical satire but they have the license to be vulgar with it and offensive because one of the most problematic sketches was they did a crucifixion at the Hamlet cigar advert with you know the bark playing and Jesus smoking yeah, a cigar yeah. it was a license to do that which you know some people straddled the two like I think you could say the young ones kind of did that and some people later refined it. That ultimately gives us people like Lee and Herring, you know, the idea that you can play with offensive ideas, Chris Morris as well, and be 
relatively right on at the same time, but maybe they just went a bit too far because I think some of them wanted, despite the you know Archbishop's education, to be seen as kind of yobby characters anyway, and they may have embraced it a little too wildly. And I don't think that's worn brilliantly now. Uh, yeah, as I said, I've not. I just remember it feeling so. You know, I, I never had any ambitions to be a comedian. Bizarrely, I was terribly serious, and partially because I didn't think I could do it. I saw comedians as one. They're all these sort of you know well-connected Oxbridge type side of the countryside in the middle of nowhere. So it was like another world. You know, the idea that I'd ever meet anybody from television living in the middle of the Shropshire countryside seemed... My uncle from London was once in a lift with Tom Baker and him telling me that was the most exciting thing I'd ever heard. But that only happened to people like my uncle because he lived in London, you know. The idea that there were people, clever people, I think I liked the clever people, I don't know why, but also, you know, railing against the politicians and that seemed so sort of revolutionary and although obviously, I, you know, came aware that, you know, the satire boom had happened in the 60s and it went back to there and so I went back and you know as time went on I, I got you know Monty Python and things like that so I you know became a big fan of sort of comedy history as well but it seemed so sort of modern and present and exciting and the fact that I was allowed to stay up and watch it made me feel sort of a bit grown up and when you're a kid all you want to do is feel grown up and it's only now that I'm grown up that I wish I could be a child again <laughs> and you realize that actually all those people that you thought had all the answers are just as clueless as you were when you were 18 it's just that as you get older you realize you can't actually do anything about it anyway and as i say i think it's harder to do now i don't know if that's just because of me and my age and i know what comedians are like and i think why the hell are you telling people what to think you spend most of your time eating ginster's pasty in a lay-by at 2 a.m you don't have a functional life <laughs> don't lecture me on politics or maybe it's that i don't know as i've got older i just want stuff to wash over me and entertain me and not sort of tap into the things that make me angry because actually I now go much more for escapism than I do for satire but I don't know if a really great sat and I don't know we just don't seem to have we seem to have lost our knack with satire I don't know why but again I'm prepared to accept that that's just my age or that actually as you say I would be horrified if I went back and revisited it and realized that you know those halcyon days were seen through a very different perspective because of my age and everything like that. let's face it if I thought it was brilliant when I was 10 the chances are if I'd been 40 I might not have done which is perfectly fair okay well, we're going to move on to your next choice now which is something that because it was on late it was on channel 4 I erroneously thought was very adult and exciting watching it again recently I'm not sure that it was I knew it was just a matter of time before I found the right password the key to the future once I found it, I knew the password would never change, promising me visions of tomorrow, of the world as it might be. I knew there was a password to the future. It was just a matter of time before I found it. Okay, you won't recognise that voice. You might recognise his bass playing if you heard it. Because that was John Taylor from Duran Duran introducing something that, let's just say, didn't quite come off. Toby, what was this? This is the second programme in a row that anybody reading the description of this episode might go, Who Dares Wins, the SAS film, and Time Slip, the Spencer Banks <laughs> science fiction TV. Again, this is something. This is why I think this is such a great idea for a podcast, but also this is something that I suspect wasn't very good at all, and yet I remember it 
and I've watched it once. And I sort of go, well, then it must have something. Do you know what I mean? There are people I've met in the interim that I've forgotten. Actual flesh and blood, unique individual <laughs> people with lots to offer that I don't remember at all. I remember this dystopian future thing. And I think it sticks in mind for a number of... One, yes, because it's got the incongruity of going, so who should we have? To It was a pilot, wasn't it, for an anthology, this much I know, of dystopian future tales. And much like in... was it eagle or scream maybe had a thing called the collector which were basically individual stories that were bookended by this creepy guy he looked like victor kayam i always thought yeah he did yeah and he had a a sort of a shop of bric-a-brac that had you know little things that led to a horror story well this was the tv futuristic version where you've got because he's got a computer he's called the hacker because computers were the thing then and doesn't he live in some sort of you know dripping garage or whatever with his lovely mullet hair and his 80s shirt and he He's hacking into, uh, basically he hacks into stories. I suspect if it had gone to series, you know, he'd have had a portentous monologue, which, do you know what? This is all coming back to me. I think one of the reasons I remember this is because I very rarely bought Starburst because it was really expensive, but I would get it if it had a Doctor Who element or if I inherited one off a friend. And I had an issue of Starburst that covered this. So maybe the fact that I'd seen it because I just happened upon stuff. That sort of happened when you watch telly in those days. So I happened upon this thing. It was like, wow, what's this? And it was, was it Channel 4 again? That's very interesting. Channel 4 seems to have been a real sort of fertile ground for finding the sort of programmes that if you were young and wanted something sort of that wasn't a sort of mainstream Saturday night show or whatever, that's where you went. I'd remember being quite disappointed, but also slightly shocked because I think there was a saucy scene in it. And then I'd got this Starburst magazine. The other thing was it was based on a story by Robert Holmes who'd written some great Doctor Whos. I'd remember noticing that. And then I got this Starburst magazine and I have, I promise you, I have just remembered this. You said you won't recognise the voice. I've got a feeling, and you might need to check this, but I am sure it said in the Starburst magazine, so it even then blew the secret. The reason that it's a voiceover is because it's not John Taylor's voice. Do you know whose voice it is? I've got, check this. I don't know if it'll be anywhere. I think this Starburst magazine article from a magazine I haven't seen for 40 years said that it's the voice of Chris Barry. That is a memory that has remained locked in the back of my cerebral cortex and has only come out as you were talking about the show just now. I think the hacker's voice is an uncredited Chris Barry because not only do they get John Taylor from Duran Duran to be the hacker, which seems such an incongruous piece of casting, but they can't even trust him to do any of the vocal acting. So I think all he does is, does he just basically spend the beginning tapping into his keyboard, which seemed to, I seem to recall looking really futuristic and amazing, and probably now doesn't look that at all. He's trying to break into, and, and he comes up with a password, which might even be hacker. No, he's the hacker. It's probably time slip and that unlocks the story of the week and this one was about i seem to recall some besuited slick haired businessman type and then his female colleague comes in and she's got shoulder pads and his virginia hay and i think they have sex i'm presuming sex is bad there's a flaming car and i don't remember much else about it but i remember it being on and i remember it being as i say written about as an anthology that never quite happened and i particularly remember yeah i wonder that meeting where they go shall we get tony hadley or one of the grumbleweeds and they go no what we really need is john taylor off of duran duran can he act doesn't matter i know a poke who can dub him so i think yes i think i'm correct in that you may well be because i've got no idea 
idea what John Taylor sounds like, I'll admit that. But I think one of the reasons this doesn't work is they're trying to blend too many things that are around at the time into one thing. I mean, like you say, there is the whole kind of 2000 AD Eagle vibe to it. And in fact, if memory serves, they live in a high-tech residential block which starts attacking them or something, which immediately, uh. well, that calls to mind the Screaming Eagle Strip, the 13th floor, which is basically yes. that. There's a little bit of an attempt to crowbar video nasties in there in particular. There's that ridiculous one, Evil Speak, about the evil computer that communicates with Clint Howard. And it looks God, very yeah. like that. I think they've been watching it. Was it a bit Max Headroomy as well? Did it have that kind of yes, vibe to the it? the idea of there being a hacker as well is very Max Headroom. But also the main story is very like kind of something like the Gold Blend advert or Arthur Haley's Hotel. It's that aspirational 80s glamour that nobody actually aspired to and wasn't very glamorous. And you know, they're throwing one of Duran Duran in as well at the exact time they're splitting up into Arcadia in the power station, which might be relevant. And they've just thought, we've thrown all these things at the wall and the bloke who does David Coleman on Spitting Image as well. Let's put all that together and it's going to work. And it doesn't, it really doesn't. But I'd have loved a sci-fi anthology series. I really would have done. There was a, you know, definitely an appetite for that kind of thing. And I think maybe that's why I remember it was because there was a period where, seeing as the 80s loved Neon, there wasn't an awful lot of sci-fi around, you know what I mean? And Doctor Who was very much, you know, in the doldrums in terms of public approval and even the channel that broadcast it. But I may be wrong, but it felt to me like if you were a big sci-fi fan, you had to be very much a nostalgist because there wasn't an awful lot of that kind of stuff around. And yet it was a time when the Americans kept trying to do anthology series. It's just we didn't get them over here. There was Amazing Stories, the Steven Spielberg one. Friday the 13th, which was very tenuously connected to the Friday the 13th franchise. I think it was little more than the name and a tenuous maybe nod to the fact that not even the Jason existed, where he came from existed, but that was more a, wasn't it two teenagers who had a, again, a bit like the collector, a shop full of bizarre objects that had the story behind them. It was Freddy's Nightmares, which for my money was a great series, which was kind of horror anthology stories introduced by Freddy Krueger, who was sometimes in them. And there's debate now over whether it's canon or not. Although there was a prequel episode (laughs) to A Nightmare on Elm Street, which, you know, did explore some of the stuff that they mentioned about his background in that and how he came to be Freddy Krueger. They kept doing it, but we just weren't over here. But it's funny because I didn't really have an appetite for American stuff. I think partially because I liked watching stuff that Doctor Who actors might pop up in. My vicarious way of watching old Doctor Who was to watch Bergerac because there was usually an actor in it (laughs) whose name I go, oh, he was in the Ice Warriors or whatever. And that was my little party trick that I'd only do to myself was to read the cast list and commit them to memory. And then when I read the Doctor Who episode guides go, ah, well, I know that so-and-so is so-and-so or whatever. So I wasn't very interested in, I sort of resented American stuff because one, it felt slightly removed because it didn't have sort of people I really recognised. I wasn't really a movie buff either. You know, it was very much telly and very much, you know, stuff that could, I was so one-track minded, anything that could be sort of connected with Doctor Who. It's weird that this time slip thing as well, it is British, isn't it? And yet the lead characters are Americans. So it's, is it Britain doing a sort of future where everyone's American? Is it that kind of thing? I can only assume it is. Like I say, there are so many things thrown at the wall at once in it. They were probably trying to think of a nasty transatlantic audience idea in the days before that was really, really possible. And while it was nominally made by Yorkshire Television for Channel 4, I assume there was international money behind it. You know, it must have cost a fair amount to get John Taylor at that point. Yeah, although I suspect he was only there for an afternoon, you know, because he was just at the beginning and at the end, wasn't he? So presumably if it had gone to series, they'd have just got him in for 
for a day. He'd have tapped at the computer, I'd come up with another password, punched the air, and then looked a bit perplexed. <laughs> <laughs> I think I wanted it to be something else. I wanted more action or... And as I say, I wasn't sure about... It sounds kind of... I wasn't sure about the sex because I sort of felt that's solid sci-fi in a way. I sort of went to sci-fi because I didn't want all of that business. Do you know? It sounds very puritanical <laughs> of me, but, you know, I don't want, you know, fellatio with my laser beams. Uh, if, if I was... <laughs> I don't know. I was quite prudish in those days. Interesting. I don't know. But that's only just occurred to me. I remember being aware of the sex scene and me sort of thinking I wasn't sure that that was right. And by the way, there wasn't. That was just a turn of phrase. Fellatio and laser beams. There was no fellatio in this, but I think there might have been a, a breast. And you certainly never got that with the tripods. That's all I can say. Okay, we're well, moving on to the next choice now. With an advert, I'm going to apologise in advance for using this, but it might well even have been in the ad break during time slip. Okay, that was an advert for Brown Trees Cabana. I apologise again for that song, but believe me, if you've not seen it, the visuals are even worse. Don't go and look it up. Toby, why do we have to have this here? This is a great tragedy of my life, Tim. (laughs) My life has been largely missing out on things and terrible disappointment. And the Cabana Bar is almost an embodiment of this. They were quite expensive. And I seem to recall they had dark blue wrappers. And they were a winning combination of things I love. Dark chocolate, always liked a bit of dark chocolate, with coconut inside. And then a sort of cherry, not fondant, but a sort of cherry goo along the top. And I can't describe exactly because they were expensive. We didn't have an awful lot of money. But when my mum took me back to this boarding school I had to go to where I didn't fit in because I was the only person whose dad didn't own a Porsche I was allowed to go to we stopped off and I had I was sick to the stomach because I wasn't going to be home for another six days and it, it was terrifying it was awful but that sickness was then diluted just on the way on the Sunday night because I got dropped off on the Sunday night and I got picked up again on the Saturday afternoon. So I literally had 24 hours at home, really. We stopped at the garage and I got, I was allowed, I think, 40 p's worth of sweets, which would last me the week. And the garage had loads of one penny sweets and, you know, Palmer violets and things like that. But for some reason that week, Probably a kindly old lady, I occasionally got pity from old ladies, had given me, I think, a pound. And cabanas, I think, I don't know, I, I've got a, they felt like they were like 52p, but they probably weren't. But they were certainly, a, for the amount of penny chews you could have got, or palmer violets, or, you know, fizz bombs, or whatever, a cabana was quite an outlay for a single thing. But I'd got money to burn, and I went, I'm gonna, I've got myself a cabana. And I'd never had one. So I got the cabana, and I put it in my locker, and a young man, I actually looked him up on Facebook the other day, he's doing very well for himself. <laughs> It's called Dominic, but I and remember all these kids at this school were well off, and I wasn't. There's an extra injustice there. Nicked it, and I can't remember how I worked out that he'd nicked it, but I think maybe I saw the wrapper on the end of his bed or something like that. Because I said, "I think you've nicked that cabana," and he said, and I remember him saying to me, "No, I didn't." And if you say that, you'll go to prison for false accusation because that's a crime. <laughs> and then I remember when I found the evidence or whatever, it went, but that's that. I remember him being really obsequious and go, "Oh God, please don't." 
telling well yes I did I didn't I just, just I've never had one and blah 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 and I'm of a forgiving nature so I forgave him and we were very good friends then for a bit presumably while he realised he had to be nice to me for a bit before because if you go to prison for false accusation imagine what sentence you get for stealing a cabana <laughs> but the long so not only was this injustice that I'd been robbed by somebody whose dad probably owned fucking Kent was that shortly after or I don't know the time scale of it but cabanas were eventually discontinued which means I have never even though I had one in my possession I have never eaten a cabana so there is a big empty hole with a story of injustice and I'd actually forgotten until I started telling this story some of the details but I definitely remember him saying you'll go to prison for false accusation <laughs> And yeah, because I knew I was coming on here, I did look him up on Facebook and he looks very happy. But I wonder if there's a burden of guilt that he's never quite been able to escape. Well, I don't think I ever actually had one either. And I'm not sure why that is. But unfortunately, my only equivalent story is there was a boy in my junior school called Stephen Cabana. And there was great excitement that he (laughs) one day had a cabana, which he probably did just for the attention. But I don't know why I never had one. Maybe it was because they were a bit expensive. But I was always looking for the, I don't know, you could get two flakes for that and flakes yes. weren't even cheap i've always been a get more for less kind of guy you know if i'm looking at a menu i always think i like all the things in that more than all the things in that but i think that one might be bigger <laughs> so I've, you know i would always i would always go for quantity over quality but i'm hoping i can't imagine it was just a bounty with jam in it do you know what i mean i imagine it must have had i think it felt like it was a bit like a caribbean cocktail it felt like it might be alcoholic even though it wasn't i think that's partially the price tag but also because of the combination of things that were in it and maybe the way it was marketed I can't remember but it certainly felt like it was a bit sort of grown up but as I say it it can't have just been a bounty with the bit of cherry jam that would be terribly disappointing and you'd think rather too crowded a market to have two such similar things but I know that it was a real shock to me when I got older and you'd have the conversation about you know Quality Street and Cadbury's Roses where you know the coconut ones were pretty much amongst the first to go in Haydoke Towers and I know people but in fact recently our local co-op they had some ladies outside to to whom you could give your bounty celebrations back and they would swap them for a better celebration because the marketing wheeze was, you know, nobody likes the bounty ones. What? That's, if I ever needed proof that I'm out of step with the majority, the idea that the coconut one is deemed as the lesser sweet in the pack is totally alien to me. If you want to criticise the coffee cream, I'm with you. That was always bottom of the pile, but the coconut one was always very much craved. That and the Montelimar, the nougat. But it does lead to another coconut confectionery that I would champion that I'm not sure anyone remembers for a while they brought out to accompany the normal feast ice lolly which is chocolate ice cream surrounded by chocolate nutty shell and in the middle this sort of plastic chocolate lump that is both disgusting yet quite moorish it was like eating you know some of the machinery in a chocolate factory that had just got sort of somehow infused with the flavor of the chocolate that it made but was 100 percent plastic they were somehow i don't know quite moorish and for a while they did mint feasts and coconut feasts and ye olde tuck shoppy in Ludlow always had coconut feasts for this very short time period and it was definitely my go-to ice I finally found an ice lolly that I thought was a definite go-to to me that was slightly different 
different to the fab or the tangle twister and i remember loving the coconut feast but it was a very short-lived thing so it seems to me that people try with coconut but they can never quite they can never quite succeed apart from the enduring bounty well yeah there does seem to be a bit of a threat there i'm sure there were probably other examples we think about but we do have to talk about really that advert which isn't that offensive but it's a little bit live and let die should we say but i'm quite astonished when i look back i mean i know it is easy to judge the past by the standards of today but some of the adverts that were aimed at kids that were around then i mean even the lilt ones are a little bit dodgy and then you've got things like yeah. the bandit one with all you know the banditos and you can stand it with bandit get your chin off the floor the new big bar bandit is as big as jail door they all escape oh, from no. prison waving bandits there's the <laughs> I still can't believe either of these were actually allowed even at the time. There was a Walkers one, you know, because there is this thing about, I don't understand how Walkers came to dominate the crisp market entirely because there was a time they were the uppity newcomers that nobody really liked as much as KP or Golden Wonder or Smiths and they just stealthily took over. But one of their earliest adverts had a Chinese guy in, I think it was Paddington Station, but approaching a kiosk and a bloke trying to palm me off with Honest John's Crisp saying, Nah, me old China, you want these, not walkers. And he got so angry that he did kung fu and smashed up the stall. <laughs> but there was also, I can't remember what the range was, something like Ross Home Takeaways or something, where, you know, it was a terrible gambit of, you know, you could have a hamburger or tandoori, whatever that was, every night of the week. And it had a crowd of takeaway restaurant owners marching down the street towards the Ross factory shouting, Loss, loss, very angrily. Oh, no. Even that, that I just can't quite figure out how people thought that was all right even then. I know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And it's always funny how, you know, occasionally you'll... In fact, I did a radio thing yesterday and the presenter was, you know, somebody had rung in and said, comedy's not as good as it used to be. And the presenter went, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I, and I had to sort of go, do you know what? I think context is everything and nostalgia is very important, but there are some things that we don't do anymore and there's a very, very good reason. And it doesn't make your life any worse <laughs> because we've sort of chosen not to to say and do some of the things that seem perfectly acceptable then. That's why I think it's always good to, you know, learn from history and have your eyes... Because sometimes, I, you know, as a 48-year-old man, I go, oh, God, you know, young kids stay there a bit touchy about stuff. And then you're reminded of the things that you were exposed to as a kid and go, no, there's a reason we progress and move forward. And, you know, it's a natural reaction to not like change, but there's a reason that things change. And be careful not to be an old stick in the mud. But I find it interesting as well, just from the point of view of you know looking at historical context and stuff it's fascinating to see what things seem perfectly normal to us that would now be absolutely beyond the pale and also from a completely different tangent i would like to get anyone who says comedy is not as good as it used to be and make them watch laura and disorder and say is that really better than anything you'll see on at the moment (laughs) but we're going to move on to your next choice now which you'll see in a minute why i've placed this right next to the cabana bar (laughs) i'm not going to apologize for that because it's the best link i've ever come up with.
Okay, that's some inappropriately jaunty music introducing La Cabina. Toby, I know this so well, so I'm going to let you explain it. It's one of those things. I'd forgotten about it, and then somebody wrote to Empire Magazine about it. I was going to say recently, but it was when I was at university, so that's 20 years ago. And somebody said, I remember this thing. And I went, I remember this thing. And then they explained what it was, because I hadn't remembered that it was foreign language, for example. It was just one of those things, as you did as a kid in the 80s, channel hopping, hoping for something exciting or interesting. You may correct me. I thought this was on at sort of children's tea time kind of time but I don't know when it was broadcast but I happened upon it and as you say it's quite a jaunty thing where a guy tries to make a call in a phone box and it becomes quite a comical a strong man I think tries to break the door down for him and a crowd gathers and you think oh this is going to be a thing where oh who's going to be able to open it I think they try and pull it open with a truck I think the fire brigade come and as I say a sort of crowd forms and you think oh is this going to be one of these sort of funny ensemble things where everybody sort of gets together to get this guy out of the phone box and I, as I say as, and I, as you've heard you know, it's got that sort of slightly jaunty but actually quite a lot of dark stuff in the 70s and 80s had music that now you listen to and go why aren't they doing sparse throbbing oppressive music why is this all quite upbeat and it's just the nature of how things were done then but it seems incongruous now but then as it progressed doesn't he then get they lift the telephone box that he's stuck in onto the back of a van and he gets taken off on this sort of journey and I get the feeling that does, does a circus does he go past a circus or some strange kind of people and it starts getting a bit more panicky but you still got in your head that this is a how's he going to spring out of this is it going to be are you expecting it to be sort of something easy he just hadn't you know he hadn't pressed the right button or something it's, ah. but actually he ends up in this warehouse and there's a whole line of other telephone boxes which have got skeletons in <laughs> and he sort of screams and that's the end or is that the end or do you then see another phone box or something there's you another do. phone box they're setting the down another phone oh, box yeah uh, so my pitch was going to be kind of isn't that a strange thing to have put on around children's TV time but I could be completely wrong and it may have been that I was channel hopping channel 4 at 11 o'clock at night because of my neglectful mother who let me watch all sorts of inappropriate things but as I say I definitely just happened across it I'd definitely forgotten about it until Empire Magazine said oh well, it's called this and then I've heard a couple of other people in fact Paul Putner vaguely mentioned it didn't he on his episode of this and he sort of said it as a and that's the one that everyone remembers but I hope that you can tell me if anything I've said there was hogwash well suitably there is some mystery to it because I think you may well be right about what I've not been able to track down is the Channel 4 showings Channel 4 would have put something like that on a ridiculous side where anyone could have seen it the problem is from memory they called it things like I don't know the phone box or the kiosk or something and you, you try searching for that in any reputable database but yeah the BBC showed it as La Cabina a couple of times I definitely in my head watched it on the BBC I'm sure well the first time was in 1981 as part of a horror double bill on BBC 2 with Isle of the Dead the Boris Karloff film and people Ah. might not be expecting this after it because this is it's got that really weird tone of I mean Spain did because it's the Spanish film from 1972 and in the 70s they did a lot of kind of you know these Laurie Macabre 
genre horror films which are as psychological as they are visceral and yeah obviously some of them later got some notoriety in the early 80s when they released on home video over here you know it's the sort of things that when Mark Gatiss does documentaries he'll fixate on these films or so this is the piece with all of that and it doesn't look like anything else you would have seen around that time really even on BBC2 I think it was later shown in remember Richard O'Brien had a BBC2 stranded in the early 90s called Mystery Train where they would show oh, a okay. short and a classic horror film and an episode of Colchak the Night Stalker well I think I must have seen the 1981 showing but I think my memory must have cheated because my feeling had been that I'd stumbled across it in the sort of neighbours time slot on BBC2 or something like that but I definitely watched those late at night horror things but as I say my memory had been that I wasn't expecting it to be horrific but that just goes to shit if it's 1981 I will forgive myself I'm just impressed that I haven't got the actual content wrong my memory had been that the whole ending had been a surprise and that I wasn't expecting that to happen at all but yeah that's clearly just the passage of time or I've been panicking because I've been stuck in a phone box for 40 years but it's certainly a great it's a wonderful simple conceit and again the fact that that image that I have of him seeing the skeletons in the other phone boxes it's a kind of rosebud moment but you know dialed up to a hundred a hundred horrors doesn't he sort of panic and his hand goes down the glass because he you know he realizes that he's never getting out of there and that is such a brilliant image and such a you know who sat down and gone why should we do a story where a guy gets stuck in a phone and ends up in a warehouse full of phone boxes that got dead people in it's a great simple horror idea and obviously done well enough that uh, you know i've remembered it all those years later i think in particular the casting is really good because as well as you know the whole the lurid setting i mean it looks like a dario argento film you know it's got that real kind of you know the brightness of the phone box and so on but also jose luis lopez vasquez who's the star of it has got that real kind of harassed middle-aged businessman look which really yeah. adds to it he doesn't look like somebody you would expect to be drawn into this scenario you know normally it'd be a teenage character would be caught up in this kind of thing if it was an american one for example but that's all the more shocking that somebody that you yeah he's a kind of every man and again somebody that you know i suppose we'd be used to characters like that being you know in sort of terry and june and that sort of thing of again the slightly comedic the whole hapless being shut in thing I, I think it was a real misdirect especially maybe with our cultural references that that kind of figure as you say a sort of harassed middle management but also because it's spanish i tend not to associate sunny days with horror so it's that incongruity as well but obviously the fact that if you're stuck in a phone box when it's sunny that adds to a little bit of the sort of discomfort and the claustrophobia but it goes against what we expect where we tend to go because the weather's usually miserable here we quite like our gray skies or nighttime shoots for horror or whatever but the fact this takes place entirely in daylight also because a big crowd forms doesn't it so you sort of think he's safe because there are witnesses it's not like he's cut off in a remote cottage where terrible things happen or in a remote village where everyone's a bit weird this happens in plain sight and everybody tries to help him so i don't think you expect what happens to him to happen because there are witnesses do you know what i mean it's there he's gonna be all right and i think that is a big element of it as well that it doesn't play by any of those kind of is there any dialogue in it my memory is that it was quite sort of silent movieish, but again i'm aware that that might be that i just misremembered that. there's just kind of ambient vocalizations i think you know commotion and right. so on yeah he doesn't have sort of dialogue with people it's easy to forget just how unusual bbc2 would go with their film choices sometimes I, i'm continually surprised by things like a while back i, I can't even what it was but i was watching an off-air recording of something in the late 70s and it said coming up later our movie of the week the crazy 
movies. You know, the 1973 George A. Romero bio-horror. It was like, what was that doing on BBC Two? Recently, I also found out Bridget Bardot's show, which is the very weird 1967 special she did for French television, was shown by BBC Two. They did used to push the boat out with things like this. But that was the point. That was the point of those. BBC Two was there to be a sort of esoteric channel for people who wanted to break from the mainstream and it had a proper identity well an identity based on it could be something that you discover that you really like that you would never have tuned into or something that actually doesn't quite work for you a lot of those I mean I love those horror double bills that they did was movie drome on BBC2 Alex Cox you know so you just go well I'm going to trust him to throw me something I I wouldn't watch that will somehow be quite interesting and there's loads I could have chosen any number of movies I watched on movie drome do you know what I mean and just the fact that it had a film director giving a five minute talk in front of it made it seem like you know I was witnessing something that was being curated by somebody who was an enthusiast and you know in this day and age of again this sort of slightly mocking slightly superior cynical way that we digest our culture you know even all my Facebook friends are largely slagging off whatever was on television the night before I get much more nourished by the idea that somebody that knows their stuff is going here's a thing and it's brilliant and even if it was something that was a bit of a compromised project or doesn't quite work well doesn't matter there's enough in there that you can watch a film that for some reason you know isn't particularly well known but has enough in it if you're prepared to go and meet it on its own terms that you can enjoy and I think enjoying something based on what it offers you rather than enjoying it because you sit back and and loftily go I'm better than I'm enjoying mocking this to me is healthier it's a big bugbear of mine that supposedly creative people are so sort of disdainful of the creative endeavours of others because I think cynicism and disdainfulness are amongst the easiest things to adopt that's because I'm an old stick in the mud and I'm sorry and you can all have your fun at however you want okay well speaking of erudite experts you really won't believe what i found as a clip to use for your next choice i'm going to play it and we're going to see if you recognize who this is series of cryptic clues which when deciphered could lead the reader to a buried treasure that treasure was a small bejeweled figure of a hare made of gold by mr williams himself and buried secretly as treasure always should be at dead of night somewhere in england in 1979, the golden hair was valued at £5,000. What it's worth now is anybody's guess. In any event, the news of its existence and the fact that it was up for grabs by the first person to unravel the hidden clues made Masquerade into an immediate international bestseller. Worldwide, it sold well over a million copies at £4.50 a throw. Not a bad return for a comparatively modest outlay. OK, that obviously was Barry Norman talking about Masquerade, the Kit Williams book, from an omnibus special about it. Toby, did you ever find the golden hair? I didn't, and there were a couple of sub- Sunday afternoons when I thought I'm probably old enough to be able to do this now and it was utterly impenetrable and I just again when I was thinking about this wonderful idea for a podcast I just thought we had that and it was a book with beautiful illustrations that had did it have sort of poem or verse or some impenetrable text that was supposed to give the clue to the location of was it for the shape of a rabbit with emeralds and stuff and you bought this beautiful book by kit williams as you say and probably every middle class household had it but i never quite got to grips with it but we had it and as i'm talking about it it seems quite an unusual thing to have existed because of course nowadays if it happened some prick would be on wikipedia immediately saying where it was you know somebody would spoil it but i quite like the idea that there were people all around the country reading this book trying to find it's an old-fashioned treasure hunt but done through the medium of literature how middle class can you get (laughs) 
So can you tell me anything about well, it? Well, it was published in 1979 and it became a huge sensation. I mean, obviously enough for the BBC to do an omnibus about it, but it looks as though, I mean, Kit Williams had been around as an illustrator for a while and I think it kind of spills out from its kind of last lingering bits of prog rock, you know, in the same kind of bracket as, I don't know, Dungeons and Dragons or those kind of things where the people who were involved in, you know, that counterculture thing, the very Tolkien influence thing, put on their suits, straighten their ties and sort of thought how can we take this idea over ground? <laughs> Which weirdly not enough signs are going into this now but that's kind of what happened with the internet really was it sort of really, that aspect of Silicon Valley really came out of hippiedom ultimately there right. are very odd things like there's a kind of hippie bible called the Whole Earth Catalogue which has got, it's kind of like an exchange of mark for people selling seeds and that kind of thing, farming implements a lot of the early issues of that from the late 60s have got home computers in it all kind of stems from that but there's very little crossover between that masquerade is basically just almost like album cover you know early 70s album cover art and text plunked together into a big mystery for people to run around trying to find as you say this bejeweled hair apparently it was eventually solved by a man called Dougold Thompson who was the first person to solve it I don't know if he actually found the hair wasn't it that I read about it ages ago wasn't it that somebody found out exactly where it was and somebody found out vaguely where it was and the vaguely person just dug up this massive or is have I completely made this up just sort of basically dug up this whole area and eventually found it there was something wasn't there about all the person that found it second actually got it I can't remember apparently the first person before the first successful one had actually just guessed and hadn't ah. actually solved the puzzle and Kate Williams was very particular about that they had to show their working so it was a bit a bit right. teacher at the end of the day actually I'm looking at the Wikipedia page it seems to contradict every second sentence who actually solved it first ah well that's probably two people editing the Wikipedia page then. Apparently Bamba Gascoigne witnessed it being concealed. Well, that's who you choose. <laughs> and he also documented the entire contest in a book called Quest for the Golden Hair. You know, they were obviously, they were planning ahead with this. You know, how could we make even more money out of this? Well, I think it's a, I do think it's a great idea. And I remember the illustrations being very beautiful. It was, you know, very well presented and designed. But again, in those days, you know, we had no idea. We had no way of knowing if it had been found. Again, it was the sort of thing you couldn't find out. I was moved to look on Wikipedia about five years ago, I think. But, you know, in, in those days, you could have this thing but we didn't know what had become of it that was the sort of flaw really was that you needed to follow up or you needed uh maybe there was did they publish a book saying and this is what happened behind the masquerade or anything? well it seems to get even weirder because there was that bamba gascoigne book but then apparently after that the times did an investigation where they i can't make head or tail of this but something to do with the person who found it it was some kind of fraudulent claim but i can't work out how and why it gets more confusing by the second even more confusing the book itself I think that's probably quite apt <laughs> then but it would be you know just be terribly disappointing if it was like yeah a guy called Trevor found it and lived that was it it probably needed some kind of sting in the tail and some enduring mystery you know apparently there was a computer game based on it as well called Hair Razor oh, oh that <laughs> cheapens by the whole Hairsoft. brand <laughs> now, now you see if, if I'd been in charge of the Kit Williams empire I'd have gone we're not having that and we're not having a chocolate bar either this is you know this is classy goods only you can have a plate <laughs> maybe a bit of Wedgwood but we're not we're not having a computer game this is art and literature and treasure hunting apparently there's a whole genre of armchair treasure hunt books as well most of which I've never heard of Key to the Kingdom which I thought was that board game with that annoying advert with the cantankerous gnome that's what he's actually called the Sankey to the Kingdom the Piper of Dreams which sounds a 
bit Pink Floydy. The Secret, yeah, I don't know that. Bit. The Golden Key. Treasure in Search of the Golden Horse. Well, that's almost copyright infringement there. The Merlin Mystery. See, it's all this sword and sorcery stuff. On the Trail of the Golden Owl. It wasn't like, you know, Find yeah. the Bin with a five written if, on it or some, something. If somebody's done a golden hair, I think if you then go, well, mine's a golden owl, I think you need to go back to the drawing board. <laughs> but again, it was, we had, because we, because I was in the countryside in the middle of nowhere, as I say, I had to sort of make my own entertainment. We had a house full of books and you'd just sort of find this thing on the shelf and that's what you'd look at. And as I say, I remember a couple of times as the years went by, I'd go, perhaps I'm old enough now to revisit this and understand it. And I remained in a permanent state of bafflement. It was entirely impenetrable to me. And apparently Kit Williams went on to design a load of clocks for public places. He also wrote a puzzle book called The Bee on the Comb, which is a puzzle book with a bee theme. Really? Well, the world's been crying oh, out for one of those. You have to find the golden bee. <laughs> oh, come on, Kit. Change the record, mate. Hang on. Oh, no, they didn't have to physically find the treasure. There were challenges to discover the book's proper title. Oh, no, I'm not I'm not interested in that. That's ridiculous. The challenge was to find the book's proper yes. title. Oh, dear. You can be too Terry mysterious. Terry Wogan was somehow involved, so obviously Bamba Gascoigne was busy that day. Is, is Kit one of those people that you'd say, so, do you want a cup of tea, Kit? And he'd go, oh, do I want a cup of tea? Well, let me tell you through the medium of mystery. <laughs> you just end up throwing him out of the house. Okay, well, I can't think of any way of getting from masquerade into your last choice so I'm just going to go into it Wednesday night at 7 o'clock there's a brand new comedy series about a show within a show that wouldn't be a show without The Paul Squire Show Entertainer Paul Squire meets his production team and his guest stars Wall Street Crash and from here on in it's comedy all the way as they prepare for the show within a show, The Paul Squire Show. The Paul Squire Show, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock on ITV. Okay, that was a trailer for The Paul Squire Show. I can't believe I found that. Toby, who was he and what was his show? Well, do you know what? I'm going to go on a journey with this because I hated Paul Squire (laughs) and I don't know why because he did nothing to offend me, although, you know, obviously, as you could tell, even as a youth, I was sort of very much on the alternative comedy side of things. I've since, you know, I've worked with people from the more mainstream side that, you know, the alternative was kicking against, and there are absolutely brilliant comedy artisans like Jimmy Cricket and Mick Miller from that side of the tracks are absolutely fantastic and very gifted comics. But, you know, I think that all seemed a little bit, you know, mainstream sort of ITV to me when I was young and wanting to... Comedy was about something, yeah. But I think my main objection to Paul Squire was that I didn't know who he was, why he was suddenly everywhere, and then a couple of years later, I suddenly realised that this person who I'd really not liked very much at all, suddenly was nowhere to be seen, and had I imagined him. And I'm sure that I'd even been to a panto that had Scylla Black, Gareth Hunt and Jimmy Cricket in, and I know that existed because I know Jimmy now, and I remember saying to his daughter, uh, who's a very good friend of mine, I'm sure I saw Jimmy in a panto with Scylla Black and Gareth Hunt and she said yeah yeah that would have been bloody blah, blah blah but I'm sure Paul Squire was supposed to be in it and wasn't for some reason on the night that I saw it and I don't know if he dropped out of the whole thing or because I don't remember an understudy or anything like that so it was almost like Paul Squire was this sort of person that was there that I wasn't convinced was actually real but I certainly was like is these shows up for me and then when he died a couple of years ago and I'm all over the obits and everything and a few friends and colleagues went oh Paul's you know died such a 
lovely guy, blah blah blah. And I remember being a bit sad for him that as somebody who'd had sort of ITV and BBC shows and had been, you know, a, a mainstay of primetime, wasn't getting an obituary. And maybe if I'd been minded, I could have had to go because I write obits for The Guardian, but I maybe felt a bit of a hypocrite and they probably would have said no anyway. And I thought, well, that's a bit wrong that you can be somebody that actually, you know, was there as, you know, part of prime time and people knew who he was and be sort of so forgot. And I don't like that way that our industry often, you know, talks of only highs and only lows and, and somehow, you know, everyone's a failure waiting to happen. And so I sort of looked him up because I thought, oh, that's, was I right to be so mean about him? And nobody had a bad word to say about him. He'd, you know, had some, as I say, some pretty big success, but his success had kind of come out of nowhere. And then it seemed to be, and obviously it may have been easy to say after the fact, but he seemed to be kind of saying, I was never that interested in being a star. I read a story that he said about he'd been on a bill with Tommy Trinder at the fag end of Tommy Trinder's career, and Trinder hadn't had a great gig, and Tommy Trinder, who was a legend, was trying to get the venue to pay him his full fee because it hadn't done very well and they were trying to withhold it and all that sort of thing and he'd sort of said and that had been a lesson to him in never being top of the bill just being a supporting act because then you can just do your thing there's no pressure and it is quite a comedian's journey actually when you start out you always want to end you know you go I want a headline I want to be top of the bill and then as you get older you sort of go I'll tell you what I'll just go on first and bugger <laughs> off home then I'll be home in time for the season finale of Killing Eve or whatever and I sort of got a grudging respect for him even though I you know I wasn't sure how honest that because it's easy to sort of go well I never fancied being famous at the time afterwards but I like that story he told about Tommy Trinder as I say a lot of people that I know and like said that he was an absolutely lovely guy and he kept going and he kept working and again we sort of like this kind of oh they did this and then they did nothing no he carried on on the road and he did shows and he did DVDs and I looked at his Royal Variety performance that I think had been the thing that had propelled him into these TV series and I admire some of those old guys because they'd come on and they'd sing a song and they'd do him and he did it I, I hadn't even remembered he was an impressionist and he did impressions and you know they were you know the fairly sort of lightweight bit of Brucey here bit of Frank Spencer there he did some stuff that would have you know is appalling by today's standards one of them you know about Cedric and Herbert they're doing this thing and you go oh so the joke is that these two guys are gay but actually the gag itself was quite funny it was something like Cedric's watching Herbert going round a roller coaster and then the roller coaster collapses and Cedric says oh Herbert are you alright and he does a couple of bits of sort of mincing stuff that again is just awful but then the punchline is which is quite a good gag he said oh are you hurt and he says yeah i went around three times and you didn't even wave which actually as a as a sort of constructed joke is quite funny but you know desperately hack and old-fashioned and horrible and you wouldn't do it those characters would not be deemed anyway suitable and rightly so but he had a lot of verve and he had sort of personal again it's hugely dated because it's sort of pulling faces and doing a funny dance and sort of slightly arch and, and sort of end of the period stuff but that you know all of those guys to do that stuff had to play some fairly hostile environments and you know cut their cloth and earn their stripes and it made me feel a bit cross with myself for hating this guy so much for no reason and all he was trying to do was to be entertaining but he was in stuff that was a bit mainstream and old hat for me and so I resented him and was cross with him and he was a, and I think he became a bit of a joke isn't he a joke in the young ones as well that basically loses the fact that everyone sort of forgot who he was fairly quickly and so I always kind of felt I kind of imagined him 
and interestingly when you emailed me you called him Paul Squires and I was like I'm sure it's Paul Squire and he's one of those people that even you nobody's quite yes. sure what his actual <laughs> name it was Paul Squire it wasn't Paul Squires but I also think Paul Squire Esquire is quite a good name for a show P.S. it's Paul Squire that's quite a good name for the show I think they're both worthy titles so the journey for me has been it was somebody that I resented and hated with no real reason apart from the fact that what he did was not particularly my thing and I came to have some sympathy for when he died a few years ago but I also know that he's somebody that a lot of people simply don't remember and yet he was for a two or three year period everywhere well I've got a theory about why he was everywhere and then not everywhere and it may explain as well why you didn't take to him but I'll come back to that because I just want to say you mentioned that he's a joke in the young ones he was also repeatedly referenced in because I mean Lee and Herring were great at spotting what people were funny to mention and why in a way kind ah. of you know that terrible have I got news for you clip where Piers Morgan tries to do Eddie is on says jam and you know thinks that's how you do it no, there's a knack to matching yeah. your comic persona with a funny reference point that matches, you know, that fits with that. And they were great yeah. at that. And quite a lot in their listings, at least having Fist of Fun, you know, it'll flash up at the end of the show. It would be things like, are you a fan of 1979 comedian Paul Squire? <laughs> And the fact that they called okay. him 1979 comedian means that they must have thought, yeah, that guy, I only saw him in 1979. But I think right. it was because, yeah. on the one hand, you know, you've got the alternative comedians coming up and you've got a lot of the old guard are either retiring or falling from favour, a lot of them were, or people like Bob Munkhouse hadn't done comedy in years. You know, they'd done game shows and stuff. I think there was a kind of gold rush to try and find the new, young, light entertainment comedians. And it didn't really really were. A lot of them came and went like, do you remember that really weird guy, Roy J, who dressed as kind of a convict and talked in sort of American accent. They tried to make him really big for a bit. I remember one called Dougie Small, yeah. who was on New Faces, and he was hilarious on New Faces. I think he pulled faces. And, and I remember one joke he did that was, again, very, very funny. And it was a joke about the British telecom advert where Quasimodo is phoned up and he goes, it's Esmeralda. She loves me. And Dougie Small did this and he did the whole impression. And then his punchline was, but he was deaf. <laughs> which, of course, if you know the story, he, he was. Which is a brilliant observation. But it's also an observation going, and I sort of know the literary source of this joke. And I remember thinking that was the best joke. and Because that advert was quite famous. It was all over the place. And he'd hit upon its fundamental flaw. And it was brilliant. And he, I think he was on the very first episode of The Resurrection of New Faces that was presented by Marty Kane and had Nina Mishko as the sort of in-house meanie he then won the final and we were all very pleased because you know as I say the first he'd been on the first episode and it'd be great and he'd won that and then he came back at the end of the series and he won and then he did an appearance on Wogan where he was massively disappointing and I don't think ever, he ever did anything ever again or certainly not that on was television exactly it. there were so many of them that they tried to do that with and that's literally why they looked like they came from nowhere and then they vanished was they were just pushed too far too early there was Cheese and Onion who Ray Earl mentioned on this weirdly they were recently mentioned in Inside Number 9 I think the only one that really broke through a bit then even he disappeared suddenly was Phil Cool and it wasn't until yeah. I think about 1989 that they discovered Brian Conley and you know I remember thinking who is he why is he on TV on a Saturday night but he 
worked. You know, he was what people had been waiting for. And so they finally found what they were looking for. But in between, you did have all these guys. Because it was, let's be honest, it was mainly men. They weren't trying to sit with women. No, it was a bit kind of, well, we've got French and Saunders and they're over there. They're with those alternative yeah. Johnnies. But they did just seem to be. So you're supposed to know who they were. You know, it's kind of like yes. the EastEnders, everyone's talking about it out there, which is, I can feel myself tensing up when I think about, you know, I hate <laughs> things that are presented as, you know what this is. And no, most people don't. When you don't. But I think that was yeah. probably why you resented him so much. And I think there was also, because again, you know, alternative comedy was bred from a lot of sort of anger in a way, and it, it channeled that. And the mainstream, for want of a better word, the, those mainstream comics were sullied by association with the likes of Bernard Manning and the sort of easy, you know, racism and homophobia that were starting to be seen as things that were actually genuinely difficult and problematic. And so anybody that was in that orbit was sort of seen to be sort of slightly tainted by that and it took a long time for that to go it's funny I was at Peter Kay's first ever live gig at the Buzz Club in Manchester which was a, you know an alternative comedy club and he was brilliant but I remember thinking this guy is just doing you know what the club comics were doing except he's not doing any racist jokes he's not doing any he's basically he's been really really clever is that he's taken all of that sort of club comedy stuff family friendly entertainment stuff gags a lot of them you know the alternative circuit was all about generating your own material where again those mainstream guys sort of swapped gags or did classic routines or whatever and he didn't seem to be doing anything groundbreaking in fact it was almost you know old-fashioned and then you realize but actually that's what the circuit is at this moment absolutely crying out for is somebody coming on and doing gags and being down to earth and being recognizable and you suddenly realize that sometimes it's not about breaking new ground it's about the pendulum just swinging back or something coming back into fashion and that was the genius of what Peter Kay did not that he was doing anything particularly new as a club comic but that he was bringing people what they'd been missing but without that association of the stuff that had made that stuff seem less palatable so timing is all you know and as I say I, I looked at his Royal Variety performance Paul Squire and he was a perfectly you know able performer one thing I nearly did for this is a series called Nightingales which is one of my favourite comedies I love Nightingales and I contend that if that had been broadcast and made when Father Ted was it would now be one of the most fondly remembered comedies of all because it had a similar kind of vibe to it it was just it was a little bit too early perhaps a little bit on the wrong time on the wrong channel or whatever somehow the world wasn't ready for Nightingales and I think it's an absolutely cracking piece and I think sometimes yeah it is it's very much about timing it absolutely is which is a very convoluted way of linking it into the fact that just before you go, there were three films you wanted to bring up that you you clearly yeah. saw at the wrong time, because you remember nothing about them, but I think one oh. scene from each. Yes, there are three films. Actually, I'm going to add a fourth one. So the fourth one I'm going to do very quickly now, because it's one that I remember walking around the park, but it's just because I... Well, I'll tell you, it's a short film that was I think shown on Channel 4, and I remember more than one scene, but I just want to remind anybody who saw it of it, and it's about a lad in a dystopian future, I think, who's walking towards the arcade where he plays computer games and the space and, and zapping and and it's a kind of dystopian future with lots of gunfire and that sort of thing and he gets to this arcade and he plays a computer game but the computer game is him walking down the street and people saying hello and him and you know it's a it's a first person shooter but what he does is he doesn't shoot them so the wheeze is that he lives in a society where it's all gunfire and everybody kills each other for, for escapism his game that he plays is instead of walking around with a gun and shooting people he walks around and sort of waves at people and doesn't kill them and he's just about to get the top prize the jackpot 
for the first time ever or the high score and it stops and it says you've got to insert one more coin and he inserts the coin and it falls out the bottom and he keeps inserting the coin and it falls out the bottom and he gets more and more frustrated and it says you've got 10 seconds or it's going to fail or whatever and he gets so frustrated he gets his gun out and he's about to shoot the arcade thing and then he stops himself because that's the final test is that to win he's not to take out his fury by shooting the computer game and that's how he gets the top prize and the top score and I just remembered that when I was thinking about doing this and I just think again that's one of those brilliantly simple ideas for I think must have been a short film that was shown somewhere somehow but the three films I remember I think I hope they're three different one was a kind of puppet thing set on a sort of horror island I'm sure it had a sort of puppet creature from the Black Lagoon and a puppet Dracula and a puppet werewolf and I can't remember what they were doing there and I'm sure the protagonist was a puppet sort of geeky guy with glasses a bit like brains from thunderbirds with a white coat on and just at the very end i think they've escaped from the island which maybe had a tower or a lighthouse or a lab or something that had blown up and i think all the puppet monsters had been androids or robots and then just at the end as they're going away in the boat the guy with the glasses and, and i'm assuming the central woman i think there was a maybe a romantic suggestion between them he says something and then he starts sort of stimming he starts stuttering max headrooming and i think the suggestion is oh he's an android too and I think I saw that on an afternoon somewhere at home in the 80s and I don't know what the hell it is do you know Tim? I've got no idea sorry no so I could have dreamed that Another one is, I think, just a war film that I just have a couple of vivid memories of. I remember the the climaxes. I think somebody's trying to... It's set at sea, and I think there's a group of people, and they've been doing some sort of mission, but there's a woman amongst them, I think, and somebody gets shot at the controls, and I think a big boat is going to hit the smaller boat, or submarine. It might even be a submarine. Now, that sounds very, very generic, but there's a specific memory I have, which I think is of the same film, where they're going undercover to wherever they're... whatever boat they're doing something nefarious on and one of the thing that they have to remember is not to say either lieutenant or lieutenant so on the boat they're you know sequestering themselves on or the boat where they're trying to do their espionage the people on that boat are either lieutenanters or lieutenanters and our heroes slash villains are either lieutenanters or lieutenant and that's the thing that they have to remember to do so as not to get found out and I can't remember anything else about that and I hope I haven't made it up and then the other one I got a feeling might be a really famous film it's I think it must be a spaghetti western of sorts or a or something like that where I just seem to recall there's a scene at the beginning where there there's a prison and the idea is that everyone's got a chance to escape but they have to run along the courtyard and, and get over the gate or whatever whilst being shot at it's either they escape or they get gold or something like that and some of the sort of boss men people are sort of watching that for their entertainment and that's what i remember of that so that's three films four films now that are just fractured memories that i thought i'll never be able to talk to anyone or about anywhere ever and it seems a shame if they just languish in the back of my memory i don't know what good it's done saying them out loud but who knows well if there's one thing i've learned with the show it's that everything will get identified apart from that spanish film i remember with the three women who steal a speedboat so fingers crossed somebody's (laughs) gonna know what all of those are and hopefully toby you're going to come back on and we'll see if anyone's come up with the goods excellent excellent well i hope i haven't banged on tediously Uh, well i mean it's sort of what i do but uh, i hope it's i hope it's been useful honestly toby it's been brilliant thank you thanks for having me 
Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of birds on that you ever knew it was possible to exist. More details, timworthington.org.